Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. back once again with the ira and lewis variety hour i know long canceled now revived <laughs> here on crackle uh last time we did this did we talk about sean mendes for an hour yeah i think we also went into a conversation about all that for a long time yeah also i was in london that time that's right this time it is face to face so just be aware, listener, that we are we don't owe you an on the rails conversation today. Who knows where it will go? This is going to be like Women of the House, Delta Burke. I have oh yes, I have reunited with producers, and I'm ready to sit down with Lewis again. Somebody I know just ended up at a dinner with Delta Burke and said she was delightful. Hey, can we get more of her just in life? Missing her. She's still with what's his name, uh, Gerald McCraney. Well, yeah. I did just start. Designing women for the first time. Oh, enjoying it? Yes. Uh, I had seen like random clips and everyone's seen the night the lights went out in Georgia Mm -hmm. monologue um, performed by every drag queen in New York at some point. Uh, It's good. It's good. The first few episodes are very weird and low budget uh, because it's only on one set. Right. Oh, totally. Right. I think I think the episodes I've seen, like, they expand, obviously, to other sets once it becomes popular. But the first one, it just seems like a short one-act play. That's how I feel like all those shows are. If you watch the first couple seasons of Cheers, it feels to me like you're watching almost a PBS staged drama of something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a, a multicam as we as they evolved. At least Cheers has like more characters, right? Yeah. This is just the four women, and it's very much—is this pre— Golden Girls? Uh, around the same time. Yeah. It's, you know, it's those Actually, same... Actually, near the end of Golden Girls, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the same sort of archetypes that people are used to right. from Golden Girls. And also just, I mean, the melodrama of the monologues. The show was actually developed for that person, the woman who developed it, Linda Bloodworth Tomas, and mm-hmm. said she wanted a show where people would monologue like women did in the South, just randomly. Well, I mean, Dixie Carter gives you at least three monologues in the pilot. Oh, right. <laughs> no, it's the story of her. Uh, well, I love that. What is like Crimes of the Heart? The yeah, all those, yes. Very wow. Good reference. One of three Pulitzer winners, by, uh, Pulitzer winners for drama by women in the eighties. By that's by Beth Henley. Can you name any of the either of the two others? <sighs> Lewis loves quizzing me. This is me looking at my producer <laughs> with <laughs> a weary face. Uh, I know one of them was Paula Vogel. It is not. That's the nineties. That was for How I Learned to Drive. Yes. Well, yes. Well. The answers are Wendy Wasserstein for the Heidi Chronicles mm. and Marsha Norman for Night Mother, which is a very dramatic play about a woman threatening to kill herself. And then she does doing it. <laughs> yes. It's a very boring play. Yeah. Oh, to my be God. Honest. Have you seen the movie with uh, yes. Anne Bancroft and Sissy Spacek? Anne yes. Bancroft. People don't know this. People think of her as Mrs. Robinson. This woman was zany from time to time. <laughs> she would run around the largest facial reactions, like Kabuki style large reactions. Yes. What did I say about an on the rails conversation? You're not <laughs> owned by. Um, I've seen Night Mother and the Heidi Grotter calls. I just. I don't have an aptitude for remembering awards. Well, you better get get to it. But if we're talking about awards, uh-huh. I am officially using this episode to launch my campaign. 
okay. for Jennifer Lopez being nominated for an Oscar for Hustlers. Uh, well, I mean, I think the internet is behind you. Yeah. We only have a couple more days till that's out, correct? Yes, it comes out this week. Go see it. She's great. She's iconic. I would say we can talk about it, right? Yeah, it's okay. her It's her best role. Yeah, it, it is. I think it is definitely her best performance. Um, I'm going to unleash a conspiracy theory about this with you. Are you ready? Okay. Madonna's two best performances are both with lady directors. Mm-hmm. Susan Seidelman for Desperately Seeking Susan and Penny Marshall for A League of Their Own. This, I believe, is Jennifer Lopez's first movie with a female director and screenwriter, Lorene Scafaria, and the whole cast is women. It's almost a shame we had to wait this long to get an all-lady movie for Jennifer Lopez, but it's the most comfortable she's felt and yet explosive. Yeah, I was talking about this after the movie that I think that her best roles comes when she plays confidence. She's a Leo, for one. So, like (laughs) us. Don't start that, okay. Like us. Uh, But out of sight... The last half of Enough, uh, The Cell, and Selena, those are confident roles when she's not playing a... The Made in Manhattan type. Yeah. yeah a or, shrinking violet. Or or someone's wife who's being terrorized, like, in The Boy Next Door or something. Uh, I think that this is really when she does it best. And, yeah, I mean, male actors always win with male directors because they vibe together the most. Right. So, I hope Lorraine... Mm, I don't know if Lorraine would get a nomination for Hustlers. Uh, I don't know if it would cross over the way that J-Lo well, is crossing honestly, over. It feels but to she a, deserves at least a writing one. It feels to me like a uh, uh, bridesmaid situation where if this movie blows up enough, the Academy will have no choice but to award it in some way, nominate J-Lo. Oh, if it makes a shit ton of money yeah. like Bohemian Rhapsody did. Correct. Um, I, uh, uh, so I just saw the statistic that uh, a U.S. A Latinx woman has not been nominated since Rosie Perez for Fearless, which is 25 years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, just statistically, we're owed something. It's got to happen. Uh, Who's your favorite other cast member in it? By the way, Constance Wood does a really good job, too. The movie is mainly about J-Lo and Constance. Yeah, she did what she had to do. Uh, I would say that Cardi is the second best. Cardi, she only has a couple of moments, but it's so natural, the humor, and it's so her. It's like what you know of her as a personality translates well in a big screen way. Yeah, I think she just needs a sitcom. Yeah. Where she can play that role herself, oh my you know? Oh, God, yes. Something fresh princey, too. Yeah. I want her to be a fish out of water somewhere. <laughs> Green Acres, that's what I want. Something <laughs> in that universe, yeah. Green Acres reboot with yes. Cardi. Uh, Bodak Yellow Acres. Sorry. I'm, Bodak Junction. Bodak, oh, Bodak, what's your function? Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> What's this episode about? I know. By the way, Kiki Palmer also great in it, yeah. of course. Kiki Palmer's great. Mercedes Rule. Oh, yeah. Appears. Who, who popped in, and I was like, girl, what are you doing in this movie? She is a, a Best Supporting Actress winner of yore, and she is back, and uh, uh, sort, sort of the, the mother of the hustlers. Mm-hmm. Mother hustler. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, I would just say, if you've not seen Lorraine's movie, The Meddler, do it. I know it has Susan Sarandon in it, which can be difficult now, but she's very good. So you get past the fact that it's Susan Sarandon who wants Tulsi Gabbard on the debate stage. Right, right, right. Also, you get Rose Byrne as a protagonist who is just relatable, not a zany character in any way. And we usually we tend to get those from her. Mm. Wow. She's good. Mm -hmm. She's great. All right. Our show. Shall we do it? We're going to get into it. We are going to talk about everyone's. Favorite foliage, Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> She's defending Woody Allen. 
I love how some celebrity decides it's time to defend Woody Allen every season. I guess, yeah. No, it, like yeah. who was it last time? It means it's time for fall, right? And we will also be talking about crazy rich Asians or a crazy broke Asian. How about that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what a like? I don't know. If she's I don't know. If she's broke. That's a rude insinuation. Uh, but Adele Lim, uh, the co-writer of the first Crazy Rich Asians movie, is out of the sequel over pay disparity. Which is the gentlest way of saying she was paid one ninth of what her collaborator was going to be paid. Yeah. And then we are going to have a rousing conversation with Chelsea Handler. I don't think she's ever been unroused. So I think you're right about that. It's a safe assumption. Uh, We will be right back to the Ira and Lewis variety hour which will surely be more than an hour. The last one was over an hour. It's going to be super young Frankenstein-y with us and Kane's doing the putting on the wrist dance. <laughs> the star of Mulan, Scarlett Johansson, is <laughs> at it again. She, <laughs> she must have no publicist. Or she's just super defiant of a publicist in a way that a very A-list celebrity could be if she wanted to be, yes. but you rarely see. I think our friend um, Joel Kim Booster had the best tweet about this Scarlett Johansson defending Woody Allen situation and that it's now starting starting to turn into a situation where he's embarrassed for Colin Jost. <laughs> God, that is too bad. <laughs> My how the tables have turned. She is a mess. You've also stepped on the joke I was going to make, which was Scarlett Johansson has had many conversations with him, and she is confident that Colin Jost is funny. <laughs> you see how it's a switcheroo is supposed mm. to be about Woody Allen anyway. Mm. Okay, well, Scarlett Johansson had an interview with The Hollywood Reporter last week, and in it, she decided that she wanted to lay down the gauntlet and publicly defend Woody Allen. The article notes that a lot of Hollywood's A-list actors have publicly expressed regret about working with him since the Me Too movement, which includes Michael Caine, Timothy Chalamet, and Greta Gerwig. Ellen Page. Yeah. Yeah. However, Scarlett Johansson, who has starred in Matchpoint, Scoop, and Vicky Cristina of Barcelona, says that, I love Woody. I believe him, and I would work with him anytime. I see Woody whenever I can, and I have had a lot of conversations with him about it. I have been very direct with him, and he's been very direct with me. He maintains his innocence, and I believe him. Seeing Woody Allen whenever you can, by the way, is a stretch. Like when she has 10 minutes, she darts up to the that, that part of town. It's like a, it's like a slice of pie yeah. from, her, from her favorite bakery. <laughs> Gotta go get it. Oh, Woody Allen's in town. I just got to stop, but let's go to Cancers. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Uh, something to do. See a show. I will say, though, that Matchpoint and Vicky Cristina Barcelona are my two favorite Woody Allen movies. I would say Vicky Cristina Barcelona in particular, I don't want to call it underrated because it was something of a hit at the time and Penelope Cruz won an Oscar, but it's definitely his best of that decade. Rebecca Hall is very underrated in that movie. I just love her. She was so amazing in Christine. That's also, she said, fuck Woody Allen, too. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, I think what's interesting, if we'll just get into the whole Woody Allen 
defense thing, a lot of the issue always comes from people wanting to defend him because they think that we are tarnishing the memory of his old movies. Mm -hmm. And I will say that you can still enjoy movies by people like Woody Allen and not defend him publicly, not constantly give him awards, etc. I actually think I am different in the Woody Allen situation than a Polanski, though, because I didn't really discover Woody Allen movies until later. Oh, I see. Life. So I've seen... You have less of an attachment. I've seen uh, Annie Hall, mm-hmm. uh, but I haven't seen Manhattan, and I've seen the movies that were in the 2000s. So that's why Matchpoint and Vicky Cristina are my favorite movies, Got because it. I just really don't have anything prior to compare it to. I mean, I've seen Hollywood ending and I've seen Hannah and her sisters. Wow. Hollywood ending. You really just woke me the hell up. Okay. (laughs) That does exist. Yeah. Uh, So I just don't have that sort of nostalgia for him. On the flip side, if we're talking about Polanski movies, I fucking love Rosemary's Baby and um, Death and a Maiden and um, Chinatown. Right, right, right. Um, Well, first of all, let's just say about the Woody Allen situation in general, it remains a complete anomaly in terms of celebrity-based scandals because, one, we're talking about a horrifying uh, charge, child abuse, where there are famous people on both sides of it and also, the like, there are people on both sides who believe this sternly mm-hmm. as in they're not letting up and you're never going to get like secret videotape of wh- how it all went down. So you're never going to actually find out wh- whatever, what actually happened. Like mm-hmm. somebody will always be lying and somebody will always be telling the truth. That's a strange part of the story. Um, so Scarlett Johansson jumping so vehemently on one side is crazy, creepy, but also there are other actresses who, have worked with Woody and then kind of defend him without going as hard as she did. Diane. Diane Keaton's most specifically. Um, But even like during the Blue Jasmine press tour, not that um, Kate Blanchett defended him or anything, but she was sort of, she treated the whole thing a bit gingerly. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it feels like there are two sides to the situation. I will now say something glib. She loves Woody Allen and her gays. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, that <laughs> clip, clip that circulated. With uh, she, she, Kate Blanchett did this uh, junket interview with a journalist named Andrew Freund, a friend of mine. And uh, she yeah, thought, he's, a, he's a person that exists. That's exactly right. He uh, said the word gays. She was talking about uh, her character's gays, and she thought he meant gays, G-A-Y-S. Which was funny to me because we just had that mix up with Robin Thede. Yes, right. When, <laughs> when Riri brought up the black gays, and she thought that she would say gays, G-A-Y-S. Right, right, right. Anyway, Kate Blanchett made a wrist gesture that was... A limp wrist. I'll say it was funny. I'll say it. I, I thought it was funny, too. Yeah. She has a real wicked sense of humor about her. It's like it's weird, somewhat underrated, I would say. And I think most gays found it funny, too. By the way, I yeah. only saw one person being like, oh, she made like a limp wrist joke, but I'll excuse it because it's Kate Blanchett. Right. Well, also, it's like not to be a, a Twitter stereotype, but just Kate Blanchett step on my neck. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, she you're can, one of those people. She you can know. say fag. That's what, that one of those, et cetera. Yeah. But, um... Uh, to be glib and a, a bit petty about this situation, you would think to uh, cape this much for Woody Allen, he would have gotten you one Oscar nomination. <laughs> I mean, like, Scarlett Johansson was somebody who, who her job really before the the superhero franchises kicked in 
was to star in prestige movies and get Oscar nominations, and she kind of didn't. So, you know, it's like Woody Allen has this history. I mean, the one inarguably kind of uh, rad thing about his legacy is how many women got signature, Mm -hmm. unforgettable roles from him, whatever. You kind of forget that about her specifically, because there's been so much awards chatter about her in A Marriage Story. Yeah. And I was like... And this Jojo Rabbit thing, which I feel like isn't going to go down well, but oh well. (laughs) It's like, I prefer the Velveteen anyway. Uh, (laughs) You forget that she used to be that kind of actress, right? Yeah, Girl with the Pearl Earring and those kind of movies. Yeah, but you're right, she never got nominations, so I feel like at certain points she was like, Marvel movies, Luke Besson, let me make some fucking money. Yeah, right, right, right. Um... So in a way, she, she's somebody where I wonder how much does she have to lose from being this upfront about defending Woody Allen? Because Nothing, because she's do you think already she will always get hired. Like she's not the, she's she like will. unblacklistable at this point. I feel like there's people in Hollywood who are exhausted by what they consider PC culture. Right. You know, every time a ballot comes out for Hollywood Reporter, one of those um, secret ballots, you know, someone's um, like brutally honest where they're talking anonymously about who they're voting for. I just feel like there's always a set of people in Hollywood who are like, fuck those people mad at Scarlett Johansson for wanting to play an Asian woman in this movie. Fuck those people for being mad that she wanted to play a trans man. And now, um, whatever, it's Woody Allen. Who cares? Uh, I like his movies. Yeah, there's a big contingent, apparently, of film lovers who are sick of being told what to think. Yes. These are the people who voted for Green Book. You know yes. what I mean? The Sasha Stone. Yes. Why? No, people don't know who Sasha Stone is, so you may have to explain that. <laughs> Sasha Stone is a alleged awards blogger. Uh, Which exists out here. Yes. That's also the very funny part of her job, too. She's not a film critic. Correct. She does not critique films year round. She prognosticates. She prognosticates about awards that films will win. Specifically the Oscars, yeah. Which is why I never take anything she says seriously about film. You're not critiquing it. You're not offering any sort of insights into the film. You're just talking about whether or not it's going to win a fucking award. Yeah, the optics on whether or not something looks good for award season. And I'm remiss to even mention... uh, this girl Saturday. Sure. Girl Saturday. Wow. <laughs> she didn't even get a weeknight. Uh, but she also has some weird vendetta against me. Oh, she does. Well, oh, I kind of knew that. A lot of people are still mad about the article that I wrote about La La Land, where I critiqued the white jazz narrative in the film. Mm-hmm. Never mind the fact that the rest of that essay was very positive about La La Land. I would say, I don't think of you as a La La Land hater. A film that I enjoy, a film that I have rewatched, a film that it was easy to make jokes about during that award season, so a lot of people did, Mm -hmm. but I never explicitly said, I hate this movie. Uh, She was mad about that, and then the next year would subtweet me in her pieces about Green Book. Being like, you know, people don't want this movie to win because of PC, et cetera, et cetera. So. It's also just yes. wasn't that good. Yes. It was not a well-reviewed movie oh, that makes me also, so upset. Also because I hated uh, three billboards the next year. Oh, right. 
God, that was such an awkwardly bad movie, I thought. Yeah. But still got universal acclaim. Very So strangely. she has become the patron saint of movies that she feels like will offend PC culture. I remember last year she was so adamant that First Man deserved a lot of Oscars, but it wouldn't because a man, a white man made it about a white man. Oh, because that never wins Oscars. Don't look at the history of the awards. Um <laughs> Also, First Man, what a strange movie. It was static for me, though technologically impressive. But I was going to say about Scarlett Johansson, to get back to that, I apologize for uh, upending your beautiful rant about an awards blogger. Um, <laughs> don't you feel like now she's almost obligated to star in a Woody Allen movie? Who the hell else is going to do it? And he, because he chronically writes movies, he will keep doing it. Yes. So and you need somebody to star in them. So is it going to be like a one woman show starring Scarlett Johansson now? And it's not the flip side, like Roman Polanski, who has evaded his justice and is living in Europe and will always get random European actors to be in his movies. And the occasional American actors. Yes. You, ha you had, um, well, they, I guess they're not Americans. Oh, no, Jodie Foster was <clears throat> in uh, Carnage and then Christoph Waltz and who was that? John C. Riley and Well, Kim Cattrall was in The Ghost Rider. What the hell? Do you remember The Ghost Rider? No. That Ewan McGregor movie? I don't think so. I actually kind of liked it. I see that. It's a you. mess, but I like the movie. And I just saw uh, for Criterion Channel, Kim Cattrall did a an interview where she goes through the Criterion Channel closet and talks about all the old movies she likes. Sometimes I forget that we don't actually know Kim Cattrall as a person at all, and I have 30 ideas about who she is. <laughs> anyway, apparently she's an old movie lover. Look it up. It's so wild. I will. But uh, I think him, like Polanski's latest movie, An Officer and a Spy, has people like Jean Dujardin in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She's like... Because I feel like Europeans are always defending people like Woody Allen and Polanski anyway. Right, right. They're like, oh, who cares? You know, it was the 70s. <laughs> Everyone did it. <laughs> uh, that was actually, by the way, what prompted my recent argument with Stasha Stout. Because speaking of the caping for Woody Allen, she went on Twitter and in her full-throated defense of Polanski, decided to list the definition of pedophile. Oh, good. Be like, oh, the girl was too old, so she he's not a pedophile. Uh, we're not talking about pedophilia here. We're talking about the rape. Yeah, he does. Right. Convicted. <laughs> yeah. So it's always he's hiding from the charge. <laughs> uh, I feel like it's crazier when people defend Polanski. Uh, because that is, there was an actual rape. A verified story. The, yes. The, the, and the charges, woman at the subject of it was like, it, it's come to the point where she says, please just let this go. I can't stand dealing with it anymore. Yes. So that one is more shocking when people do that. I agree with you. Woody Allen is, at this point, you just sort of expect people are going to be like, I like him. And when people like Scarlett Johansson come out and have this, big defense of him, I feel like that makes it easier for other people to say, you know what? I believe him. Right. No, please. I've been on the other end of longtime fans of Woody Allen, friends of mine who've been friends, who've been fans of his, you know, since they were born, basically telling me I have to watch the early 90s, 60 minutes that base that quote unquote exonerates him or makes me look crazy or whatever. So there is this sometimes silent, sometimes mouthy uh, defense of Woody Allen still lingering out there. I also just want to say that I find it particularly cowardly, though, that someone like Scarlett Johansson would speak out about how she believes Woody Allen, because what you're really saying is that you don't believe Dylan Farrow. Mm -hmm. And if you are getting around talking about how you can justify that, that is yellow. And that is not fair to her, as she has been so explicit and articulate about her experience 
time and time again. Mm-hmm. So to not put her as part of the equation and what in your defense of Woody Allen is revolting to me. Right. No one ever addresses the fact that to defend him, you believe that Dylan is lying. Yeah, right. And they always sort of equate it in Mia Farrow's maybe lying. Yeah. But Mia Farrow's not the one making this account. Correct. Yeah, no, you can read Dylan Farrow's specific account. Uh, I also just want to say, to go back to what you said about um, losing affection for Woody Allen films, I feel like it is, I guess, a particular gene, but I have the gene where any movie that actually has Woody Allen in it feels exactly the same to me. There are a lot of people that always just find him kind of consummately fascinating in his movies and super funny, like the epitome of funny. Whereas I feel like if I've seen it one time, yeah, if I've seen it, if I've seen him do it one time, he just the exact same thing in all the other movies. Yes. He's not an actor in the sense that you want them playing the same role each time. You know, I mean, that's basically what actors do anyway. You know, they play a different variation of something that they do really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for him, he's just sort of there. Yeah. He, there's there's nothing interesting about him. There's nothing exciting about watching him on screen. Yeah, and he I'm gets just like to, get get off. You're ruining this movie. And occasionally he just makes up with the most beautiful women alive. I want to draw everybody's attention to the movie Stardust Memories, where he makes up with Charlotte Motherfucking Rampling, <laughs> the Lauren Bacall of our time. Anyway, concerns me a little bit. Yeah. And finally, that this also just made me remember that. We missed someone else defending him, too, recently. Oh, who? Joel Schumacher. Oh, right, in that crazy profile where he's like, I have fucked 500,000 men. (laughs) By the way, how old were you when you discovered Joel Schumacher was gay? It was way later on. It's easy to forget. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense watching Batman and Robin (laughs) and any of his other movies. but Which I believe was a movie about nipples. Yes, but in that interview in Vulture, he talks about how... He's still friends with Mia and Woody, which oh. I feel like is a weird thing of people from that era. Um, there's a lot of them who probably are still friends with them. Yeah, why wouldn't they? And be? so it just feels weird to think as Mia, you have to just sort of disassociate the fact that this person who I'm friends with is also friends with Woody Allen, which means that they believe him, but also they still want to be around me. Right. It's just, it's, it's sort it's of that typical weird. thing of trying to stay outside of that drama mm-hmm. while saying the right things about both sides, which is impossible. But the grossest thing that he said in the interview about this is how sometimes men will like leave the receipt for like a hotel and their um, jacket unconsciously because they just, it's better for the wife to find out about the affair and confront them than have to sit down and be like, I'm having an affair. So he suggested that Woody left those photos out on purpose because it would have been easy, you know, easier for uh, Mia to discover it than him having to tell her what the about hell the kind relationship. Of, like theater <laughs> explanation. That's so Agatha Christie. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. I thought that was an odd, Beautiful an, theory. An yeah. odd anecdote in an interview with a lot of insane anecdotes and... Vulture is really on a roll lately. Again, this is apparently what they do. It they is where... find somebody you want to hear from and dish it out. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of people we want to hear dish it out. Oh, here we go. Chelsea Handler is next. Next. 
As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. <laughs> Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. <laughs> Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have it always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Chelsea Handler is here with us, and we have seen your new Netflix documentary. Ooh. Hello, Privilege. It's me, Chelsea. So I just want to ask, what was the impetus for doing this? 
My, uh, well, the impetus, there were many. Well, no, there was one. You know, the election was a very confusing time <laughs> for a lot of us, uh, for me. And afterward, you know, I, I before the election, my biggest, you know, most stressful decision was deciding whether or not to have a water slide installed from my bedroom balcony into my pool for adults. <laughs> and then after the movie Blank Check. Yeah, yeah, crazy. After the election, I was running around Bel Air, where I live, in my white community, Passing out waters to all the Mexican guys that were working in our neighborhood, thinking I'm being woke. Meanwhile, they're like, fuck you, we're citizens, okay? I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm sorry about the president. Don't worry, we're gonna protect you. They're like, we live here. We are <laughs> I'm like, okay, I need to get I, I, like my head out of my ass and find out like what the situation is and why I was so blindsided and why I was reacting in such a kind of um, you know, outraged way, which is an, an appropriate reaction to a buffoon like Donald Trump. But it was taking over my life in a way that I was just so angry and I was so outraged. I thought we had like kicked racism to the curb with Barack Obama. And that was my white naivete and my own experience. And I thought we were going to kick sexism to the curb too. And then like, you know, smack your face. It, like, And then we have to revisit both of these things in, in ways that, you know, people of color have been dealing with this entire time. And, you know, white people who are living in their bubbles think is like, oh, we were making progress. So I wanted to do a deeper dive and learn more to be a better advocate, better ally, kind of rethink uh, about everything I'm putting out into the world mm -hmm. and doing it in a responsible way rather than just cashing a check because I can. Mm -hmm. I would say in this movie, you talk to um, activists, you talk to other comedians. How much of a priority was it for you to get like the discomfort on tape of both asking, um, say, black people? Uh, people what they thought and your reaction to I mean th there's an interesting part in the movie where someone says you can cut this out but I think it's uh, w weird that you're here in a room full of black people basically taking from us mm -hmm. you know so was it important for you to get that discomfort on tape yeah I mean I, I'm pretty comfortable with discomfort yeah. that's kind of my comfort zone and I like to have uncomfortable conversations and A, I feel a sense of responsibility because I have been so fortunate and I, who knows if I really deserve any of that. Um, you know, that's arguable. So you, but I think those uncomfortable conversations, you know, I used to go into conversations wanting to change people's opinions. And then I started to learn how to have, be a better listener to have my opinion changed, to hear the whole story, to hear about why people do feel racism, you know, why they do act on racism, what what are their motivations, why, and why are people so unwilling to admit that there is white privilege and why do they get so defensive about it? You know, there was a person we interviewed who said that they're not racist because they watched The Cosby Show. So there's that, you know, Ooh, kind just of a basic fact. those kind of conversations where you're like, well, that's just this is a dead end. <laughs> <So> <laughs> let's move on to the next person. Yeah. Um... What did you think as a person of color watching the film? I'm curious. Yeah, you know, I was very interested in how you went to that situation where there were a lot of black people who could ask you questions because um, I was already thinking about what questions am I going to ask Chelsea when she comes here. And um, someone immediately had brought up, you know, the book, You Gotta Be Kidding Me. Um, and I remember before you've talked about how you never wanted to apologize for things you've done in the past. Um, so I just wanted to know how you felt in that situation talking about the book or even with a situation where, you know, it's like, I remember the Lupita Nyong'o tweets um, after the Oscars, you know, about like Angelina just filed her adoption papers uh, after Lupita had won for 12 Years a Slave. Like, are those things that you 
reevaluate now and maybe not necessarily want to apologize for, but you feel like you get now where people were coming from? Yeah, I think it's important. A, I mean, I went, you know, I I had a kind of come to Jesus moment for myself after the election because I just stopped everything I was doing. I went deep into therapy and I went deep into activism and was trying to figure out, you know, what the meaning of it all was and what the meaning of my life is and blah, 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 blah. But through that, you realize that anytime you're defensive about anything, you're wrong. You don't, the need to be right is wrong. You know, so anytime I'd be like, well, I make fun of anybody, everybody, I'm an egalitarian, Jews, Christians, Catholics, blacks, Muslims. Yeah, now you have to understand, and this is something that happened on the documentary, you know, you have to understand how people are receiving that, not what your intention is. Even though my intention wasn't bad, it was being received bad. It was hurtful to people with histories that were unlike my own. So it is really much about, so much about getting out of your own lane and understanding what other people are dealing with. And for a long time, that just never occurred to me. It didn't occur to me to have to think about that. I thought, oh, I'm doing great everything in my life. I have, you know, I have black people on my life. I have black people on my show. I I don't think I act that way. So nothing to see here instead of taking a deeper dive and going, well, what are, you, are you really being mindful of that? Are you really being mindful of what it's like to be the only black writer in a room? Are you being mindful of what that feels like? And, you know, instead of necessarily this kind of entitlement that comes with it. And uh, so it was it was one thing to identify it. And then there was a ne- the next move was to do something about it. And, you know, the documentary became a very personal experience for me because it was about my own. I wanted to talk about my own privilege um, and. And through that, you know, we visit my ex-boyfriend from high school who I hadn't seen or spoken to in so many years. And that experience, you know, I dated a black guy in high school and I was 16 years old and I rammed into his life and had fun. And when I was ready to leave, I took off. But I was in his culture, in his neighborhood. I lived with his mom in his house half the time. You know, I was in that community because I thought it was fun. It was like something I had never been around before. And, you know, that is privilege. He wasn't able to walk into my neighborhood and act like that and hang out with me and my family like that. So when I spoke to my director, she was taking me through all of my history and my, you know, and when I told her that story, she was like, we need to go see that guy. And I'm like, please, with the ex-boyfriends in my documentaries, it's not my favorite thing to do to revisit an (laughs) ex-boyfriend, especially one who was incarcerated for 14 years, we came to to find out. Mm -hmm. But during that time when I did date him and we were 16 years, I was 16, he was older. Uh, he, we got caught with uh, weed like two or three times, I think three times. And each time he was arrested and each time I was let go. And at the time I thought that was because of my personality or because of the way I looked. I didn't ever equate that people were discriminating, you know, against black people. I just thought, oh, I'm killing it. Yeah, I win. Yeah, Yeah, Mm -hmm. I win again. Also, I think uh, one of the big points in this movie is that you talk about how just white people need to have conversations among themselves way more often than they need to interrupt black spaces and, and, you know, pose questions to other people since, um, you know, white people benefit from white privilege and then they face no consequences. It's the consequences go to others. How in your own life have you started uncomfortable conversations just with other white people? Like what are the circumstances that have provided you with, you know, 
a rad opportunity to talk about this. Well, the documentary was yeah. the first place because, you know, white people are very resistant to talking about this. Yeah. I mean, you probably saw those conservative women from Orange County talking, mm-hmm. you know, at, we wanted more of those people, but people would come on and then they would be like, we wouldn't they wouldn't sign the release if they had said something because people are so nervous about how they're how they're discussing it. And I think that, the, you know, my message of this documentary, because it's, there's not some huge solution that I come to at the end, it's more about, okay, if you can be more aware and if you can be more mindful and you can think about it on a daily basis, you're doing a better job. You know, as long as you're not part, you don't continue to be part of the problem and instead trying to be part of the solution. And by pressing people to say, hey, there's no reason to be defensive. Okay. Racism is is systemic. It's been happening for hundreds of years in this country and thousands of years elsewhere. So don't deny it. Let's just start talking about it and move forward and figure out, oh, God, yeah, I have these prejudices. This is what I think of this certain group of people. Have I ever acted on them? It doesn't matter. It's not about people being guilty. It's about saying, oh, yeah, I could see why this is unfair. And what is my part in it? And, you know, I think the one sentence I read that made me really think was like, to many people, equality feels like a loss. To white people who are benefiting from the privilege Every person of color getting an equal opportunity can feel like a loss, like men and women becoming equal. It feels like the party's over for men. Mm -hmm. So you see how this dynamic works in many different constructs. So it's really important to be a voice for the, you know, for the groups that, you know, don't have enough support Mm -hmm. from the people that are benefiting. So that's how I feel about that. I think I answered your question. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. I mean, you know, and like, it's one thing to talk about, you know, jokes and this and that, um, that people may want to reevaluate. But I always think about actionable things that we can do as well. And I'm just wondering, like, did you then start to think about maybe even your previous late night show, um, maybe even your sitcom that you had, you know, and sort of think like, wow, were there a lot of white writers in this room on my projects? Are there future things that I would like to do where I could add other voices? Because I feel like when we talk about things that we can do with white privilege, a lot of it starts within our own community, you know, yeah, and we're it has in. to start with your own. Yeah. And yes, the answer to all of those are yes. You know, all of those things. It's like you just now we're living in a different world. Everyone has to be mindful of what's happening right now. So it's it that's important. And people who are annoyed by it are the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, the resistance to that acceptance is the problem. So, uh, yeah, you have to be mindful of all of that. And, you know, just doing little things within your community makes a difference. You know, I... Uh, I thought I was woke. And then I was like, wait, I moved from a white neighborhood in New Jersey to Brentwood, which is the whitest neighborhood possibly in America. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) Since the beginning. And then Santa Monica. And then I moved to Bel Air. And the thing I learned the most in therapy is like once you're able to identify an issue that you have or a behavior that you have, that is half the battle because the next stuff is actionable things that you can do to kind of uh, deprogram yourself of those notions. And that's pretty much the message that I'm trying to get across, you know, and, you know, I've done it in my life. I've done it in my community. Kamal Bell gave me great advice about helping, you know, he's great in the movie, public Mm -hmm. schools. Yeah. Yeah, he's great in everything. 
love him. Um, you know, he's like, you know, why don't you some you can do something actionable because people are always asking me what to do. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, you can start anywhere. You can start at your public libraries. You can start in your public school systems. There's so many public school systems that need your help, that need, you know, money for school trips or field trips. They need money for computer programming that they can't afford. Um, you can help charter schools. You can help all different kinds of ways in your own community. So it's not just like, oh, what are you supposed to do if you have millions of dollars? It's like, what are you supposed to do on a day-to-day -day basis? You know, learn more, befriend people that aren't like you, learn more about different cultures and understand how this all works together. So for me, it's been a huge growth experience and a huge learning experience. So I hope what people get to take away from that film is like, I hope, A, that it's thought-provoking and that it makes people think like, oh, because, you know, I, I, I get so many messages that say, well, I'm not a member, you know, I'm not a, a white, I'm white and I've had no privilege. I have three jobs. And, and it's like, that's not white. It doesn't mean you're going to be wealthy or yeah, that there won't be obstacles. Yeah. Yes. It's like, it's, it's the difference between going to a grocery store and being able to meander through it for hours. If you feel like it versus being stared at like you're shoplifting. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you uh, too, just about the way in which you think comedy may be shifting in, um, you know, our culture too, because do you think that jokes aside, it is important for us to be calling out um, comedians? One of the most interesting things in the documentary was the professor who talked about how comedians help us sort of self-criticize. Um, and I was just thinking about the fact that you, you opened with Kevin Hart, and I assume that this was filmed before his Oscar situation. Um, yeah. And I don't know um, if you feel like comedians, what's the best way to deal with something like that when the public is mad about something that you've said um, and you need to respond to it? I mean, going forward. Well, I like what Kevin did because... I think it was important because you can't move back. You know, what are we going to do? Unearth everybody's jokes from 10 years ago or whenever it was. All you can do is to know better and do better, to quote Oprah. <laughs> but, you know, like you seriously, you have to get better at being yourself. And I think that's everybody's, you know, not to use the word journey because I can't stand that word. The Bachelor ruined that so many years ago. <laughs> but, you know, it's really uh, important about just not making the same mistakes twice. Like now I can. I, now I have enough perspective. Now I'm on tour again, doing stand-up again. Like, I just added a whole bunch of dates. Um, and I'm not doing jokes about that stuff anymore. And it's the easiest thing in the world. You don't have to make fun of people's races. And if it's if it's a tricky subject and people's feelings are hurt, then we have to take into account why and how and the history behind it. And it's really very simple. It's like guys who say, oh, there's nothing funny anymore. You can't joke about anything. You can. You can't just you just can't joke about sexually assaulting women or uh, discriminating against Muslims. Like, sorry, <laughs> pick another topic. Uh, so that's a good challenge, I think, for anybody with a fucking brain is to, <laughs> to, to work a little bit harder at being funny. Do you feel the same way in the debate about, I guess, like jokes about whether or not like Lindsey Graham is gay? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, that's funny because it's conflicting and it will be always. You know, I think the evolution of any person, myself especially, is learning more, you know, and not reacting in the same ways I would have before. 
and being mature about it. And it kind of is a nice space to be in. So I'm like enjoying being mature. I've never been able to say that in my life. You know, I do feel mature. There's a footage of you in the opening of this movie where you say, you say it somewhat, it's an old stand-up routine of yours. And you say, I came here to be a movie star. And that actually got me thinking, once upon a time, I actually associated you with acting. I remember you were in a thing called In the Motherhood that I thought you were great in. Thank you. And I was wondering if you missed acting at all, if that feels like a lost life for you in some way. I don't really feel like an actress, yeah. you know, or an actor. <laughs> I don't feel like that. I mean, I do it for fun. I've been in movies and I would still do it, like yeah. if it was a great role, but I'm not, that's not my forte, really. I I think I'm just a communicator. I've learned that through my last book, all my books and my stand-up tours, and now being back on 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 tour doing stand-up by myself on stage, something I never thought I'd do. I realized that I'm a storyteller and I'm just sharing my experience with everybody and hoping, you know, to kind of move people and inspire them. I mean, that's what is really the best thing is to be able to inspire people. Mm -hmm. And uh yeah, so I'm not really an actor. I just never have been. When you were making the documentary, uh, was there any people that you reached out to who maybe you were surprised who didn't want to be on it? I'm not talking about like conservatives in like Orange County who are afraid, like well-known people who comedians you might have wanted in it alongside Kevin Hart and like Tiffany Haddish. Oh, no. I just asked if some other people I knew to be in it, like, you know, friends of mine. I, there was no one famous that I asked to be. I didn't want, first of all, I didn't want a ton of famous people in it because mm -hmm. that's not what the point is. Um, but I wanted their perspective about, because we all came up together, you know, doing stand-up and they were on my, they were on my shows, Chelsea, lately, years ago. And we, so I know them both. So I just kind of wanted to see what their thoughts were about me performing because I used to always perform in this comedy club that was considered a black comedy club, Mixed Nuts on Pico. And, and you know, I was always like the only white person for a long time. So, yeah, you know, it was just all kind of like you to think about those moments while you're going through them would be more advantageous than having to, you know, revisit them 10, 15, 20 years later. Mm -hmm. um, I also think a specific part of your... I'll, I'll say journey, is that you really came to extreme prominence via your books in a way that I feel like most co comedians don't. And I also I can tell that you really wrote them, for example, and are like they're from your experience. Like, do you uh, do you feel like you're trending away from books and now do like this kind of documentary nature is taking over that part of your life? Or do you feel like you'll always write books? too? No, I mean, I just had a book come out in May yeah. and it was number one on the New York Times list. I hate to say that about myself, but I, you know, <laughs> I just have to um, have to because you didn't. Um, yeah, no, that book was called Life Will Be the Death of Me. And it was all about my self-discovery and self-awareness and learning how to be calm and not reactive. You know, when Trump got elected, I fucking went batshit. I was going into airport lounges, into the Fox News lounge, looking for people to fucking scream at with the veins throbbing out of my neck going, how could you vote for this motherfucker? And it became unmanageable. Like I was too angry and I knew I wasn't going to be able to get anything done for the midterms in that state. And I wanted to cross the country and I wanted to <laughs> and I wanted to um, talk to people, get them registered. And I partnered with Emily's List to get progressive women elected and so that we could get women and people of color to match what this country looks like in government, you know, and we made it, you know, because so many people dropped everything and did just that. Mm -hmm. uh, we did make so much progress. And so hopefully we can keep that going until, you know, the next election. Are there any people sort of in the race right now who you're really excited about? I would love Elizabeth Warren and Stacey Abrams to tie the knot. Absolutely. <laughs> that would be yes. the best combo <laughs> platter, right? That's undeniable. Yes. I just discovered on the internet yesterday, too, that Stacey Abrams is a huge 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan. Oh, wow. Which I did not know. And she talked about it like so eloquently and compared it to how we need to find other people to find their potential in politics. Yeah. So, good for her. That is very geeky on a serious level. Yeah. Congrats. Congrats to Sarah Michelle Geller. That's true, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you're a, a Liz Warren fan. I, I just find her continuously well, I, undeniable. You know what? The day I posted on Instagram that I was leaving my Netflix show, she actually called me on the phone and was like, wow. She goes, because I was like, I'm so upset by this situation. I want to do everything I can for the midterms. And she called me and was like, I'm so impressed by what you did. I can't believe that you're going to do this. Please let me know if I can help you in any way. And I've interviewed her. I've read her book. She mm-hmm. is the one candidate I believe that has the most coherent plan and policy and i and she she's not out for herself you mm-hmm. know kamala's a little too slick for me a little too political i've seen i've seen her in situations where i wasn't that you know, I didn't like what I saw. I love Beto, but I don't know what's going to happen with that. And Joe Biden it should shut the fuck up already. I mean, honestly, every time he talks, it's a, yes. a fucking nightmare. It's like, shut up. You cannot string a sentence together. I mean, we already have a baboon doing that on the other side. Do we need like two? Uh now that you've done this documentary, you're you're back on the road again. Um, what do you think is next for you? Well, I am. I have my yeah. This documentary comes out this Friday on Netflix. Then I'm going to start my tour in Australia. I'm doing a stand up tour, but I'm doing 20 cities. So and I'm adding more dates. So if the your city is sold out, I'm coming to cities like Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Milwaukee. And if your date is sold out, we will be adding a couple of extra shows. Mm-hmm. Um, Australia is the country that needs to see your documentary. Yeah. Oh, so and then I'll probably film a stand up special when I'm Mm -hmm. done with this tour. When I feel ready, I'll film that. And then uh, I think, you know, Universal just bought the rights to my book, my last book. And I think I'll develop that to star in that. I would act in that if I'm playing myself. I'm into that. Uh, And then, you know, I'll do more documentaries or a docu-series. Maybe I'll do one where I take a bunch of drugs, like the new drugs that are coming out, like ketamine or they're doing all these kind of uh, studies and, you know, research studies for mushrooms and acid and MDMA. And I'm really interested in all that stuff. So I would love to get into one of those studies and film that. I recommend them all at once. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Make sure you get yeah, just like an eight ball. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> I'm a tank. I've had so much experience with drugs and alcohol that you could probably put anything in my system and I would still be able to, I would still be able to get home. Oh, and I'm coming out with my own cannabis line in Ooh, November, right. just, yeah. just in time for the holidays. Okay. It's just such a helpful tool mm-hmm. in life. For me, it's become, you know, I used it first to sleep, then to, you know, wake up and then like, oh, this is so much better than alcohol. Like my whole life is different because of cannabis. Yeah. And particularly, you know, I'm very interested in um, black women having a lot of room in that space, too, particularly since, you know, uh, it's very easy for a lot of white people to partner with cannabis um, industries and black people. um are famously in prison for a lot of those things. And you're sort of barred from entering that industry. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Do you know black women that want to be in that space? Yes, I know a woman. Her name is Mary Pryor, and she created Canaclusive, which was created to facilitate fair representation of minorities and cannabis consumers. And I could probably connect you with her, Yeah, why don't you connect us? Because that would be a good partnership, possibly, down the line. The product is also secretly for me, by the way. I, I, I go to 
It's for women. Okay, good, good. Don't I'll worry. put on a bonnet. Do not worry. Uh, don't yes. worry. But it's it's more of an intro. It's like an entry level branding, so that I can you know tell women like here, this helps. This will mm-hmm. help if you have anxiety. If you're dealing with this, if you want to take the edge off, you know. For me, it just made everything. And everybody less annoying. And that was a bonus for me. And it was, it enabled me, it was my gateway drug to meditate. I was never able to meditate before pot, uh, before I started like, you know, this renaissance when it became legalized in California, because you know, I would never do anything illegal. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Straight so, and narrow, Chelsea. So I, would, I, yes. so I, never, Violet. I never even smoked pot until it was available. <laughs> How would you get it? Yeah. No. Uh, well, thank you for being here, Chelsea. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me. Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Let me tell you something, Lewis. Please do. Crazy rich Asians? Not so crazy about paying their Asian writers equally. Well, I mean, you deserve a Peabody Award for that comedically (laughs) progressive joke. Thank you so much. (laughs) I didn't write that copy. Oh, okay. Our producer did. I just wanted to highlight it so she knows and we can have an eye-to-eye look. Yeah, you're giving her (laughs) mean dynasty eyes. (laughs) Wait till she finds the toxic paint in her office. Anyway, Adele Lim, co-writer of the first Crazy Rich Asians film and until recently of the blockbusters two sequels, has stepped away from the project due to the massive pay disparity between herself and the movie's other credited writer, Peter Chiarelli, who happens to be a white man. Indeed. I'm shocked. Uh Uh-huh. Can you believe it? Um, never, never heard that before. Never seen a white man in Hollywood. Right. This, this, this is not representative of a culture at all. You would never (laughs) find any other examples that are similar. In a statement to the Hollywood reporter, Adele emphasized that she felt obliged to reject the deal on behalf of other writers of color. And THR's initial report written by Rebecca Sun, who I adore, uh, cites unnamed sources who said, Peter stood to make 800,000 to 1 million from the two movies compared to the 110,000 plus that Adele was offered. And just to be clear, both these people worked on the previous movie. Yes. So apparently the initial negotiations with Warner Brothers were made last fall 
into early 2019, and Adele actually rejected a deal to split her co-writer's fee with him, hoping to make something close to that fee herself. Uh, so it is worth note that when Peter found out about it, he was like, just split the money with me. And it's also worth noting that I'm glad she rejected it anyway. Yes, yes, she should have rejected it because she should have been paid that same amount. Getting the paid su- that much less than him. I mean, clear, the message of that is they clearly didn't even care to have her involved with the production. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder, in a way, I'm I'm more bitter that she's not a part of it because it feels like that's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're going to pay him that much more and, you know, uh, feel kosher about it. Right. And it brings into mind the idea of people who are hired to add diversity, to add some flavor, as it were. She was at it after he had done a couple drafts of the film already, and that's when I believe John Chu, um, who's been on the pod uh, and who also released a statement yesterday um, in defense of her. Um, In the smallest font imaginable. It did hurt to read John Chu. It was very painful to read, John. (laughs) (laughs) Next time, just use the fucking notes app like everybody else does. With multiple slides. (laughs) It's a common thing, though, of sort of adding someone in for diversity purposes. You know, it's like we already have the film that we want, but now here's someone who can make it authentically Asian, or at least have the appearance of that so that the internet can be like, oh, wow, crazy rich Asians, female Asian writer involved, Asian male director, cool, let's go. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, It just, it also speaks to me, it feels like they they just don't think there needed to be an, an Asian writer behind it, which is so crazy because I feel like what I cherish about the movie beyond, you know, the sort of, the zany plot uh, is is the amount of detail in it, you know, mm-hmm. not just within the families, like physical details, things I would have never um, thought thought about in another movie. She uh, was involved in an interview with John Chu for, I believe, Vulture, too, where they broke down the Mahjong scene in that film, which is the best scene in the movie. Um, it's deeply empowering. It is Gatorade as a scene. <laughs> Michelle Yeoh, every facial expression, and her defeat at the end is really rad. Yes. Uh, I will also point out that another element of this story is the pay disparity can also partly be attributed to where Peter and Adele do most of their work. Correct. So yeah. Peter wrote the proposal. I'm going to, can I say something about the proposal? That really gave Sandra Bullock a, a serious boost at a, at a time in her career. That's about 2008, right? Mm-hmm. And also that's where the Betty White renaissance happened. The movie's not that good. I just don't like the proposal that much. I will say that I it have be not, quotable. I will say I have not seen the proposal since it came out, uh-huh. which probably speaks to how I felt about it in retrospect, right? because I love rom-coms. And if I really adored the proposal, I'd probably rewatch it all the time. Mm-hmm. Like I can quote 27 dresses more than I can quote the proposal. You, that's a syndrome. You have a problem. I mean, don't you want to dance t- with James Marsden to Benny and the Jets? Uh, but I, Judy Greer, top five Judy Greer. Okay. <laughs> um, and Adele, her credits are all television. And that, that medium we all hate. I know, right? And so that is sort of the idea that TV writers are lesser than film writers, I yeah. guess. You know, it's it's a thing that um, when a TV writer tries to jump into film, it's like they will be offered less because it's, oh, you were just writing TV. 
Right. Also, how do you know how to write a film? Well, part of uh, the statement the studio released also said something like, well, it's just standard based on blank, blank, blank. Like, what about the situation strikes you as standard? Right. She it's has, called Crazy Rich Asians. She has been a writer and co-executive producer on Lethal Weapon, Rain, Starcrossed, Private Practice, Missing, Life Unexpected, Life on Mars, One Tree Hill, fucking Pepper Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Variety. She even wrote on Las Vegas on the fucking Foxy's John Doe. Okay. <laughs> it's just, I mean. A career going back to 2002 writing in this industry. Also, my question is, so they, did they just think she would never find out about the pay disparity? Yeah. That's really weird. Right. Because it's, it's also her agents, her people would have known, you know, uh, her lawyer would have known. Um, and it really just is very disappointing on a lot. Especially since, I mean, who isn't looking forward to that sequel? You know what I mean? You can enjoy it on every level if you are deeply invested in the characters or you just want something to zonk out to with a glass of red wine on a plane. It's perfect. You know what I mean? I can't imagine anybody being like, I wouldn't watch the sequel to that. And now it's stained. Mm -hmm. um, she told The Hollywood Reporter that uh, her voice as a writer, like many other women and writers of colors, is also seen as, quote unquote, soy sauce. And she said... Pete has been nothing but incredibly gracious, but what I make shouldn't be dependent on the generosity of the white guy writer. If I couldn't get pay equity after Crazy Rich Asians, I can't imagine what it would be like for anyone else, given that the standard for how much you're worth is having established quotes from previous movies, which women of color would never have been hired for. There's no realistic way to achieve true equity that way. And I mean, that sort of reminds me a bit of Chelsea's documentary, right? The, the black people who were interviewed in it specifically talking about the fact that there was systematic oppression, redlining, housing issues, um, pay disparity for black people in America. And you can't just sort of fix that with some laws that were signed that say that everyone's supposed to be equal, right? And you can't really fix a system in Hollywood that says this amount of experience gets you this million for a movie, right? When historically it's only been white men who've been given that experience. Because right. then it means that it's only white men who are going to keep making that money and everyone else is trying to play catch up. Yeah. Also, can we just talk about the amount of money itself? Something around $110,000. If you write a basic cable uh, TV series for one season and you're a staff writer, the lowest position, I mean, I think you're still making somewhere around $75,000, $80,000. This is a sequel to a gigantic blockbuster, and she's making that little money. It right. just is it, not, ju not just how much she made in comparison to him that's gross. It's the actual amount itself that makes no sense. Yes, for a movie that is going to make a shit ton of money. Yeah. And that is also what she was going to be paid for both movies. Yeah. Both movies. I, I, I don't understand it from any angle. I'm sorry. I wish I could be more authoritative on it. It is so obviously gross. And it, it, it is what it is. You're, there's no X factor. We're not computing. It is so bad. Yeah. Uh, it's a depressing story. But I think Rebecca, when she tweeted it out, talked about how she's upset that it happened, but glad that she was able to report this story because it is a way for us to have this conversation. And maybe other studios now will be more reticent of this. I mean, it sort of reminds me of that insane situation where Octavia Spencer discovered she was making so much less than Jessica Chastain 
oh, in yeah. a movie. And Jessica Chastain had to step up herself and make it happen. Yeah, I had to step Which up. Which is and so get the help of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then she went and made Molly's Game with Aaron Sorkin. Right, uh, yes. <laughs> Which we all lost, Molly's Game. Everyone lost, even Molly. One, <laughs> one good scene. I always say about that movie, it should have been a TV show, but I didn't like the movie itself. So maybe it shouldn't have been a TV show or anything. I think it would have been fun as a TV show because the best part of the movie was her running the illegal game. Right. If she was doing that for nine episodes, then the 10th, it's like, okay, we'll go to jail. Right. It also has maybe one of the worst scenes I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, with the ice skating scene with Kevin uh, Costner? The ice skating scene where her, where she has run away, her father is looking for her, magically finds her at the ice skating rink. He's, he doesn't live in New York, and they're at Rockefeller Plaza. <laughs> yeah. And then they have that speech on the park bench. Horrible. About, like, her skiing past? Yeah. Yeah. I and, was... and then he, what, chases her on the ice for a long time? Guys, I mean, it, it, it sounds like I'm describing a telenovela or something. I was like, you wrote this? West Wing wrote this. Right, right, right. Girl, go buy an eight gram and give me something better. <laughs> yeah, this is a post newsroom, Sorkin. Yes. But anyway, <laughs> to this, it reminds me of that situation where we started talking about inclusion writers and actresses of color and actors of color making the same as their counterparts. Right, right, right. So maybe it's something that will change. But, you know, it's it seems easier to change things involving money somewhat in Hollywood when you make a big fuss about it as opposed to, um, you know, hiring and other things. Oh, yeah. Uh, unimportant things like that. Yeah. I mean, John Chu basically said as much in his statement, but and this sounds so trite, but I actually do think this is a progressive moment. Yeah, I do think there's like a no going back element to how disgusting this looks and how bad the studio looks. Can we also talk about the fact that I love John Chu. Mm -hmm. We had a great time when he was on the show. Right. He named his son Heights Chu. H-E-I-G-H-T-S? Yes, because he's directing the In the Heights movie. Wait, his son is named Heights? Yes. That might not even be among the words in that title what I would name my kid. <laughs> in is a little cuter. <laughs> the Chew. <laughs> Heights Chew. Hi wow. I mean, that's... The Gwyneth jumped out. Yeah, yeah. Well, the uh, uh, Ashley Simpson jumped out. Bronx Mowgli. <laughs> Mowgli. I believe that word comes from Sanskrit. The fact You're that, Ashley Simpson. The fact that Mowgli is his middle name. Right. And not even the first one. Brox Mowgli. Oh, my God. Also, Pete Wentz, isn't he from, like, is he from Chicago? Yes, Pete Wentz is from Wilmette. Yeah, that's what I thought. Wilmette. I mean, that is, like, rich Liz Fair country. That's, like, <laughs> that's like among the richest places. Bronx, you need to be directly related to, I believe, J-Lo in order to call yourself Bronx. <laughs> but we do know I love Pete Wentz and Fall Out Boy. I, I, right. Not my brand in particular. In um, the year of 2006, what am I listening to? Uh, 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 the answer is the Veronicas. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think I've told you this before, but Leave Me Alone, my favorite Veronica song. Oh, it is a good one. Also, yeah. uh, Leave Me Alone, also a very underrated, who's ready for this, Natalie Imbruglia song off her first album. But th th And we're not supposed to say it. What? But a very good Michael Jackson song. Oh, right. Well, uh, you know what it is? Actually, an amazing video. Yes. When he's on like the roller coaster. And yeah. The... And it's like going through all the tabloid headlines and stuff. Perfect video. You know what? Let's just say it. I believe Michael. He didn't <laughs> do it. 
<laughs> His ghost told me yesterday. Oh, I, <laughs> thank you for that inspirational Dave Chappelle quote. Can you imagine if after all we talked about this episode, I was like, fuck it. Michael Jackson <laughs> didn't do it. I'm saying it now. You stormed out. Yeah. And I would win. So go ahead and do it. Yeah. Get out of here. Well, that's our topic. I think we did it. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot what we were even talking about in the first place. Uh, we'll be right back with Keep It. And we're back with Keep It, our favorite segment of the episode. It's still the only segment with a name. We have got to name these other things. Well, we have intro. True. <laughs> Thrilling. I can't wait for intro. <laughs> I feel like we've had other random segments in the past. We should bring some back. Yeah. I think we just forget them is the problem. Remember when we stole OK Stop from Love It for Star is Born? Oh. Uh, we should do that again. Good episode for us. Yeah. Should do that again. Yeah. Find a trailer and just do it again. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he doesn't do it with movie trailers. He always does it with some Laura Ingram interview. Oh, I know. Also, he ain't listening to us. We'll steal what we want. Yeah. My first keep it. Because oh, you're I, going first. I feel like we enjoy. Have a, I feel like we have a few. Okay, keep it to this president of ours tweeting at celebrities like Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, Deborah Messing. W- when we have a white claw shortage, I know. Oh, I know the irresponsibility. Yes. Do something. Be presidential. Also, <laughs> how is it possible that we have a white claw shortage? They strike me as. Readily available ingredients. They don't have them in many of the stores that I've been to, by the way. And I don't know if they never had them at, like, pavilions, but I haven't found any. Well, I'll tell you what I find disturbing about White Claw is straight men getting to drink it. Because uh, 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 a spiked seltzer just... Something about it speaks to gay men. It speaks to women. It's like smoking. Only gay men and women should be able to do it. It looks cool when we do it. It's oppressive when a straight man does it. Right. It's weird thinking of straight men ever drinking Zima or clearly Canadian. No, exactly. That's also for us. Yeah. I will say that another reason John Favreau will never be on this show, Uh huh. he prefers truly. He prefers that petrified Capri Sun. <laughs> that they call Truly. I was in Chicago and I had a sip of Truly. I truly feel allergic to most things now after having sipped that. It was radioactive. Marie Curie, it felt like she had kicked me. And <laughs> you know that feeling. Uh, when I think of radioactive, I think of the Rita Ora single. Oh, of course. Um, Who doesn't? Um, here's the thing about Truly. Is that the one that's zero calories and then... Uh, uh, it's uh, innocent. And then White Claw <laughs> is 100 calories or something like that. Take the hit. Go for the 100 calories. <laughs> uh, You're enjoying your night yeah. and the ruby grapefruit of it all. Truly is absolutely disgusting. And I think White Claw has the better flavors. If I had to rank them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, again. Bon and Viv is better than Truly. I do enjoy the shape of the can, though. The daintiness of it. That I can hold it like this. Mm-hmm. That uh, The way I would hold, you know... Um, um, a, a, a sub man by his neck. Yeah, that's what I want. All right. Well, why don't we get to your keep it <laughs> so we can get out of here? Uh, my keep it. Th- this will be a little bit of a repeat for me. I feel like once a year I'm allowed to rant against the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which of I hate. This is a segment within a segment. Right, right. <laughs> Lewis, Lewis in a 51st States way brings up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame again. Um, 
My keep it is to the fact that Tina Turner is still not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist. She is only in there with somebody named Ike Turner, I've whom never heard I know of him. nothing about. No, Isn't he nothing dead? of his credits. He is dead. Famously dead. I know that about him. Best thing he ever did. <laughs> keep going with that. <laughs> More death. Yes. If was, Ike Turner could die again, right, we'd really enjoy it. How can you be deader? Do that for us. Be dead and loving it. Yes. Pr- yes. A-, a la Dracula. Um, my concern is this. There's an amazing profile of the fact that Tina Turner is retired and doing it very well. She lives the way... You ever read a John Grisham book and at Mm -hmm. the end of it, he doesn't know how to tie it up. So the protagonist just flies to an island and lives happily ever after. She's doing that. (laughs) She's living that life. She's like Darby in the Pelican Brief. Um, And uh, so afterwards, naturally, I went and looked through her. What's up with Tina Turner, her credits, her history. She is still not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a solo artist. And she is the definitive female rock and roll performer. It is bizarre to me how few women one, still aren't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I'm always talking about Carly Simon not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And James Taylor got in like 30 years ago. What's the math on that? What did James Taylor do that Carly Simon did not? I want to know. Also, there's just the fact that at this point, I get it, uh, Proud Mary. But multiple Tina Turner songs are better than Proud Mary. Oh, you're listening to God's ears. Every single song that she's made post-Ike is better than the song she did with him. And also uh, Private Dancer, which was her breakout solo album, just in general, one of the great 80s albums, period. And also- That song just makes me feel so slinky. Right. It kind of out Sade's Sade, which I never thought I would say. Mm. Um, But it's also, that album to me is such a great acting performance. You really feel like you know her after, and and she's just performing songs written by other people. It really is acting to Mm -hmm. a certain extent. Um, So it kills me that she's not in this. You know who else is in it as a solo artist? Carol fucking King, the definitive uh, uh, songwriter turned superstar. We have a Broadway musical about her, but she's not in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It kills me how few women get in when they're supposed to get in. Even Joni Mitchell, who got in in the mid 90s, was a few years late. Perhaps the definitive folk singer-songwriter of all time. You know, right up there with uh, Bob Dylan, uh, etc. Pete Seeger, whatever. Um, Only Madonna and Janis Joplin have gotten in, as women, solo artists, on their first year of eligibility. Well, you know what? I'm pretty sure that the Illuminati will get Beyonce in. Okay, sure. So... We've got that. She will get in six years early. (laughs) When is the eligibility, by the way? You have to, it has to be 25 years after your first solo album. Okay. So Madonna got in in 2008. Her first solo album was 1983, you know. But uh, for instance, I'm still waiting for Bjork, maybe the definitive 90s, 2000s artist period to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, for example, uh, Janet Jackson only got in somewhat recently. As you know, Janet Jackson started recording solo stuff at the beginning of the 80s. Mm. It just feels like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame exists to solidify the idea that rock and roll is a definitive male art form, that we like it best when it comes from men, that we remember it best when it came from men, and that women get in, I think, one-fifth of the time as men. Literally, there's never been a year where more women got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as men. As you know, there are two main genders, male and female. Male keeps winning five times to one. Yeah, you know what got me into rock music? It was women, so. It continues to be. I can't wait to see that uh, Linda Ronstadt documentary that just came out. Yes. The Sound of My Uh, Voice. I'm also very glad my boys are in the Hall of Fame, by the way. They're not women, but... 
Hall and Oates. Oh, sure. Yeah. They have feminine energy. Like, Hall's hair alone. Oh, God. <laughs> right. Bless. We were talking about Yacht Rock recently. They are the definitive Yacht Rockers. But I am so obsessed recently with What a Fool Believes by Doobie Brothers. Does that song do anything for you? I love the Doobie Brothers. Michael McDonald, his voice goes beyond male beauty and enters a realm of almost dog-like symphonic sounds. Michael McDonald is a god. Yeah. Anyway, that song is both really dorky and also sexy. I can't explain it. Can somebody else explain why this song is so good to me? I don't know. Weirdly enough, I feel like the only time white men were sexy was the 80s. Uh, you think so? Yeah. yeah. You're not a Bee Gees uh, hair apologist. You know, I love Andy Gibb more than the Bee Gees. Oh, well, he was deeply hot. Yeah. And his What's that song, Shadow Dancing. Yeah, yeah. And his albums were largely out in the 80s. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm right. Uh, <laughs> finally, my last keep it. Oh, we we're don't, going back to you. We don't even need to get into it fully because I feel like we've talked about how much. Kevin Hart sucks. Yeah. Um, but I really hated Little Nas X being subjected to his idiocy. Oh, yeah. Um, in, in the shop, um, that HBO show, which supposedly has black men having hard conversations. Um, and I think it really puts a lot of onus on. Um, um, maybe too much pomp and circumstance on the idea that um, the best conversations are happening in the barber shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would usually hear a lot of conspiracy theories as a kid <laughs> um, and um, a lot of things like what Kevin Hart said, you know, it's like asking Nas X, why is it so important that he came out as gay? I mean, and that's dumb. He also, the, to me, he sounded like he was trying to say the progressive thing. Like, it doesn't matter if you're gay. We're all just people. Yeah. Which is, of course, not progressive. You know, yes. and you should be able to be as guilelessly yourself as possible, which means announcing you're gay every second if you want to. The secret password today is guileless. Oh, yeah. I do say that a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> it was so revealing seeing Kevin show up in Chelsea's documentary where he's talking about race and then knowing that he doesn't get how that works when it comes to black queer people, as we talked about last week with mm-hmm. Dave Chappelle. Like, it, it completely goes over his head. And the fact that he was so uncomfortable when she made a gay joke about him. Oh, right, right, right. Like, has anyone ever died inside of you? And he was like, what? And he seemed to be fuming about that joke still while... Chelsea and Tiffany Haddish were joking about it and high-fiving later. Well, I, too, have had an uncomfortable confrontation with Kevin Hart about homophobia, so I uh, uh, relate. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's our show. Yeah, I think we did it. I love that we do this once a year. A pas de deux. Yeah. Yeah. A paso doble. <laughs> uh, By the way, is that season of Dancing with the Stars happening? Like, is Karamo up and dancing yet? He's in rehearsals. Oh, okay. He's in rehearsals. He released a Instagram video where he said that as he stepped into rehearsal, he was thinking about, I don't know, what God put him on the earth for and his purpose and spreading positivity and, you know, won't let the haters get him down. And Tom Bergeron's licking his fingers and it's like, just another sucker. Yeah. I hope he loses to Sean Spicer. Oh, my. Right. That's possible. This could actually happen. Sean Spicer will lose really quickly. I'm not worried about that. But anyway... 
That's our show. Get Shavonda on next season of Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> I miss her. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again to Chelsea Hannah for joining us. We'll see you next week. Keep It is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. Our editor is Sarah Barrett, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. (laughs) Auto Trader.